Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nish Nikolich and today's guest is Professor Winifred Lewis. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland, Australia, and her research interests focus on the influence of identity and norms on activism. That's our topic today, and in particular, how to create a successful uh, activism campaign. Uh, There are a set of ideas that uh, Winifred brings forward from her research that is very fascinating that I think shows that how influence and how movements gain traction um, and we can see this among all contexts whether it's you know, rights for uh, any vulnerable or, or a minority group along with other causes that need lots and lots of support like you know, the environmental state that this world is in. Uh, hope you enjoy this episode. I certainly found it very interesting and rewarding. Winifred, a real big thank you for coming onto the show today. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you uh, and and really try and do a bit of a deep dive and delve into you know, your experience and, and, and research into uh, really the psychology of activism, effective activism, and, and I know how, how much further that kind of branches out into into other areas Uh, before we get a start can you tell me about how you became interested in this area well I think of myself as interested in the psychology of democracy and social functioning more broadly so I started off doing a master's degree on how people responded to discrimination and of course you know that there's many different ways and some of them are very useful uh, to the self to the group to the community and some are you know, useful to the self, but counterproductive to the community, like hiding it um, sometimes. And some can be, um, you know, positive and, and uh, confrontational or, you know, negative. And I was fascinated by the diversity of responses. And I continued on in my PhD, looking at the way that people responded to conflict between English and French Quebecers. I'm from Canada, as you can hear from my accent, although I've been in Australia for 20 years and more now. Um, So I started a PhD and and again, um, just so struck by the options that people have and the very different choices that they make facing the same situation. And so it wasn't long before I realized there's a psychology of effective activism and ineffective activism. There's a psychology of democracy and a psychology of of gridlock and um, a psychology of peace and conflict. And I found that there is actually a 
a specialization called peace psychology that will allow you to study all of those things. And so I'm a social psychologist. I study people's functioning broadly, and I specifically look at uh, their political and social attitudes and actions. Yeah, it's it's uh, very broad, but obviously that that yeah. uh, tendency to look at democracy, fairness, um, how people perceive perceive that, and and when they have a an issue, a topic, a matter they want to yeah. talk about, how is that organized and and, and yeah. put forward? Tell me a little bit about the academic work that you've, you know, specifically looked at in in, in this area because I know how well published you are and and, and the many um, the many pieces of research you've been involved in. What are the the um, sort of spaces that you've you know been involved in and and and, and some of those interesting you know findings because we we see this stuff happening everywhere whether it's marriage equality yeah. environmental issues i think re, you know there's a there's a uh, a recent one i think that that um former prime minister uh rad is is trying to push a bit of a momentum around you know media um reform uh there's, there's always stuff going on obviously covid is a big yeah. one in terms of yeah. you know, our rights um yeah, it's so That's relevant right. all, all the time. It is relevant all the time. And it's it, it's also the case that sometimes there are serious issues that don't produce the kind of action and mobilization we'd expect. And so, um, yeah, I, I've been myself an activist for a long time, starting off in human rights and um, anti-racism and feminism. And, um, you know, over the course of my last two decades, focusing most on peace and the environment but also in areas like unions and, um, you know, LGBT and, and so on, marriage equality. So I was interested in it as a participant, but as you say, as a scholar, yeah, we're now in the position of publishing, having published more than 150 papers. And um, it's just more and more fascinating, uh, more and more to learn. So I think if I just imagine what your listeners would be interested in as Australians, um, one of the papers we published last year was looking at our marriage equality plebiscite that we had here in Australia and looking at how supporters and opponents reacted to the victory because uh, the victory of the yes side, of course, is the defeat of the no side. And so, you know, how do people react? What do they think? And I guess one of these ways that this question came home to me was way back in 2003 at um, the time of the Iraq war, my office mate and I had both gone to a, the big peace rally in February when, you know, tens of thousands of people mobilized to say that Australia shouldn't join the coalition of the willing. And as you remember, in fact, Australia did join that very month. Um, there was an invasion of Iraq. And the next yes. month there was a there was another peace rally. And I asked my office mate if he were going to go to it. And he said, no, you know, I went to the first one and it didn't work. <laughs> So I thought to myself, wow, okay, there's a fork in the road, isn't it? Um, there's a situation. Firstly, you know, if you disagree with the war, which most people did at the time, you know, do you take action or not? Because a lot of people don't, most people don't. And then if you take one action and it doesn't work, you know, do you quit forever or, or do you do something else? So in this um, piece that we published in Psych Science, uh, Psychological Science, our, our discipline's top journal, um, what we did was we looked at the supporters and opponents before the vote, 
And then we looked at them immediately afterwards and six weeks later. And so what we found was before the vote, there were really two groups of supporters and opponents. Um, in, there was a moderate group that basically voted and did little else. They might've talked about it with their friends. And there was a small group of more committed activists that were um, mobilizing on both sides. And then after the vote, what happened was the supporters really became more homogenous. They, they had won and they all became moderates together essentially. So they showed a low intention to do much in future, but you know they continued to support the cause. And then much more interesting is the impact of the vote on people that oppose it. And what we wanted to look at was, um, you know, do people just accept it and move on and give up? And of course, some people did. And uh, do people want to just keep doing the same old strategy? And some people did, even though there had been this decisive vote. Um, some people after the no vote wanted to keep campaigning. And then there were others that we called innovators. Another way of looking at it could be, you know, radicalizing uh, people that wanted to try new tactics and use different approaches, maybe more controversial. And then there were some, um, you know, that just re remained in that camp of wanting to move, uh, give up and, and let, it, let it go by without accepting necessarily what had happened. And so it really helped us to think that kind of research, you know, how does this dynamic unfold over time? And our lab started to look at how social peace and cohesion can be created or undermined through these prolonged periods of political argument. Because something like the condition of women or racism in Australia is a, a very long, decades-long arc where hopefully we're seeing more and more acknowledgement, more awareness, more engagement, more willingness to bring equality to the forefront. So over those decades, people are changing and movements are changing. And so our research has tried to show the conditions that would lead people to change in ways that are more supportive of democracy versus more cynical and skeptical, or you know, more willing to break the law, more um, open to radical action or less willing. We look at something like the environment and many of our listeners would have thought of uh, movements like Extinction Rebellion or XR. Extinction Rebellion it isn't just its own group. It's the product of that long history of mobilization in Australia, of campaigns, of, of um, petitions, of rallies that have not led to the action that environmentalists and people who care about climate change want to see taken for emissions reduction. And so part of our work is looking at how the perception that conventional actions fail promotes people taking more radical action. And of course, that isn't a moral issue necessarily. We can still condemn or approve of the action, but we can ask to what extent are people motivated you know, in taking radical action by a belief that conventional action doesn't work. And then of course we can also ask, sorry for this very long answer, Nesh, but um, we can also ask what is the impact of conventional and radical action? And our research does ask that. So in another paper published last year in, um, gosh, this the social and psychological, I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember the journal. <laughs> SPPS is the acronym that we academics use. <laughs> Social and personality science or something like that. 
and um, published in that in that uh, journal, which is a good journal, despite my butchering the name. Um, we looked at what the impact is of radical and conventional action that fails and succeeds. And we were particularly interested in the impact on support for democracy. And to make a long story short, we found that when people are um, exposed to um, conventional action failing repeatedly, that leads them to become more skeptical of democracy. And so the responsiveness of politicians or their, their failure to respond you know, gets into a bit of a vicious cycle where conventional action that's ignored can promote radical action, which on the whole is also ignored. Um, so a bit of a vicious cycle where people's faith in democracy is shaken. And once we start to see democracy support drop, we start to see a lot of willingness to break the law. And willingness to break the law is, of course, quite bad for democracy um, in the sense that People have always been willing to take a stand for moral issues, but once policymakers and police officers and the military and intelligence community start to identify that particular communities or groups of activists are um, you know, willing to break the law, they start to surveil them and criminalize them in a different way. And that is very problematic politically, but perhaps understandable when you think about what their brief is, which is to maintain public order and so we have seen in Australia some very interesting dynamics of what we call mutual radicalization or state radicalization, where support for human rights has dropped and some human rights laws have been rolled back. You know, new measures have been introduced to criminalize protest and to um, prevent people from exercising their abilities to meet in public and to give voice in public, you know, and directly engage with the public and policymakers. So, um, that work has been summarized in a book we call The Psychology of Effective Activism that was published by Cambridge University Press last year. So those are probably the three areas of my research that are most contemporary. And I'm very excited um, by new grants that my colleagues and I were su successful in obtaining, uh, which are about the psychology of gridlock and the psychology of um, effective advocacy when gridlock is persistent. What are some of the characteristics that bring about uh, failure or success on on activism? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm asking a question. Uh, uh, I mean, I know that longevity is an important conversation here. As you mentioned, some people say, you know, I tried it; it didn't work. Um, yeah. as activism is, 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 it's a campaign is the way that I view it. That's the, the language and the word yeah. that makes most sense to me is that I yeah. believe in something and, and I have a campaign for change that's going to yeah. potentially last many years, often yeah. decades, and, 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 yeah. and goes through lots of leaders along the time. But what are some of the successful characteristics um, and maybe, you know, the, the, the traits that, that uh, lead to non effective um, campaigns yeah because really well, firstly i'd is, like to position sorry, go on no no please 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 i'd like to position the activists as in a relationship and a dynamic with the policymakers and the community mm -hmm. so um one thing that makes activism more difficult of course is repression and i don't want to not mention that sometimes governments are corrupt and repressive so here in queensland as you know um you know joe bielke peterson criminalized protests, rallies were forbidden of more than three people 
you know, um, his his re regime was corrupt, and it was very hard for activists to push forward in that context and create uh, positive change. But um, if we imagine, you know, a, a responsive, um, not necessarily supportive, but responsive political um, policymaking community and and a community that's not uh, dogmatic necessarily, the question is how should the activists move forward? And so in the book, um, we highlighted one of the reasons why this is so contested and still not um, progressed as a scientific research question is because like medicine in the 1800s, we actually face a lot of interacting variables. And so people are making an argument and um, having scientific studies that don't use common definitions and don't study common topics. And as you know, in that context, it's very hard to move forward as a field. So we proposed initially that it would be helpful as psychologists, we thought, if we could identify seven different things that activism could be doing that are fruitful. So one of them is raising awareness of a cause. Another one is building sympathy in the community for that cause. Another one is generating intentions to act. You know, what, let's say we want the community to recycle more or perhaps to welcome refugees. And then we wanna see those intentions translated into actual action. So those first four, um, we'll call them mobilization. But there's three others that are really important as well. And that's sustaining the movement over time because as you know, it does sometimes take a lot of time and building coalitions, because sometimes your own community is gonna to be too small to get the job done and you've gotta persuade other people to do it for their own reasons and avoiding counter mobilization. So when we have those seven different things in mind, we can now understand why it is so hard to agree about something like XR. You know, if we have those big die-ins, what do they do? Well, one thing they do is they generate awareness. You know, when you look at the media coverage of those protests or violent protests, it's often much, much higher, much, much higher than conventional protests. And so that is an indicator of success on one level. And then we can ask ourselves, okay, well, those kind of um, die-ins, they do raise awareness. Do they build sympathy? I think that's an interesting question. Do they lead people to form an intention to act? Do they generate actual action? And then of course, do they generate counter mobilization? Do they build or undermine coalitions? And do they help the movement to stay together? So I'm not opposed to um, the idea of controversial action, but what I would really be interested in both among scholars, um, but also among activists is a conversation that looked at the potential to move forward in some of those ways, like building awareness, but move backward in others, like maybe creating counter mobilization or undermining sympathy for the cause. And once we do that, we can have experimental activism. Um, you know, we can have groups that are really open to trying different ways. And if building coalitions are important, we can then look at that goal as a, as a scholarly community. Because what's happened now, as you know, Nash is so common is um, different those, different, those seven different outcomes are studied actually by different researchers. So we as psychologists have tended to study awareness, attitudes, and intentions. Political scientists and policy um, makers have studied coalitions and hardly anyone studied keeping the movement together 
sociologists perhaps and social movement um, researchers or um, coalition building. Coalition building is a such an important topic that psychologists have so much to contribute to because building a coalition with people who are different from you, we, we know as psychologists, it's mm. going to be challenging. It's challenging for communication, clear understanding, and it's challenging in terms of negotiating those differences. So if you and I have something in common and we wanna work on anti-racism, and you know, you're coming from one perspective um, and I'm coming from another, how can we cooperate in ways that don't result in public bickering and factionalism down the track? And all you have to do is volunteer in a community group you know, for, a, for five minutes and you'll see that that is an issue. I mean, I, my favorite story about that is one of the peace groups that I was in for a while. We had a four hour conversation about our priorities for next year. There were 11 different options. And after the four hours, we decided that our priorities would be all 11 of them. <laughs> we couldn't come to a consensus. So um, unless we did that, unless we just said, we'll try and do everything. And it won't surprise you to learn we didn't have a very effective year that year. So as psychologists, we have so much to contribute to the study of those goals. And the same with counter-mobilization, right? Most people, as I say, are trapped in that dynamic where we're really looking as moderates at the other side's extremists and judging them. So Democrats looking at the Republicans in the US context, you know, and really seeing that they're trying to undermine democracy. But what they seem unable to, to grasp is that moderate Republicans also believe that Democrats are trying to undermine democracy. So that's the very dangerous dynamic. And the same thing has occurred to a lesser extent in the um, Australian context around environmental change. You know, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that there's been disinformation and misinformation um, that have slowed progress on climate change. And some of it might well have been motivated by sinister motives. I think it's hard to avoid that conclusion. But when we look at why ordinary people are not supporting immediate action on climate change, we have to look at issues of trust and prioritization rather than focusing on the idea of corruption. I just um, well, we could talk more about that. I'm not sure. Um, I've no, written, please. I've got a mental note here, Nesh, where my answers should be shorter. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Please speak because, you know, I think what, 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 what you've, you know, uh, outlined there in those seven, seven key points are, are, are very powerful. And I'm sure we could do a, an entire episode on each one of those. Um, yes. while, while exactly. you were talking, I, 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 um, it came back to me that uh, I actually um, uh, had a staff member here who went to the bank um, to just do some of our banking and um, there happened to be an Extinction Rebellion um, protest occurring in front of the bank. And unfortunately, wow, yeah. uh, our staff member was struck with uh, oil that they were throwing oh, wow. at the um, uh, at the bank. Uh, mm. And when I found this, I, I found out. I, I, I marched down there and I, you know, had a good word to him, and I, and I said, "Hey, guys, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to to your cause, and 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 you know, yeah. what you guys, you know, in terms of, I, I get it. You want better for the environment. Mm. You've got to look look at how you are, um, you know, uh, uh, doing this because it, it, it's yeah. it's not helping. And when when you talk about, you know, one is building awareness, and they certainly did." 
did at least yeah. some of that. I, I actually don't think they did a good job because the public wouldn't have understood why they're there. Um, yeah. They didn't have the right language to, 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 to show. Um, yeah. And the, the, the regular person wouldn't be sympathetic to them. They, they would say, yeah. look at these idiots running around throwing stuff, damaging property or yeah. you know, hitting someone of the public. And so um, yeah. uh, it, it's interesting how that uh, – the message can be lost if it's not yeah. done with with great wisdom. Um, yeah, and I'm sympathetic to anyone that wants better for the environment um, and you know a better future. I mean, how could you mm. argue with that? Um, yeah, uh, but uh, the means in which to do it is, is complex. And I know that the lady that actually asked them to come back and please apologise to the staff member. She did, and she did a, a reasonable job of it and explained she's really upset and even even yeah. said. You know, it's really hard because some of the young, uh, you know, they're willing to do anything, you know, to stop yeah. traffic, to, 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 to break yeah. things. Um, and she was obviously one of the, the wiser ones. Uh, yeah. That probably looked like she had been involved for quite some time and she understood that this is a, the long game. You know, you're not going to yeah, get in front of a, a, a bank. And, and different uh, audiences as well, right? Like, so I think yes. part of what happens with radical actors is they often have in mind only the extremists on the other side so those kids you know if they're younger people those students or younger people throwing oil they're thinking of the destruction of the environment and people profiting financially you know now the science is so clear and people are already suffering in the pacific animals are suffering australia is burning and flooding and it's only going to get worse and people are profiting from that it makes them furious and so I think um, in that context, they're not looking at the wider picture. And that's where I come back to this idea. You know, yes, there's a real problem. And yes, there are real bad guys. But how are we going to get action on climate change? It's going to happen when 51% of the politicians vote. <laughs> so that is actually our goal, right? And so I think they have um, a theory of change that maybe hasn't thought through the steps of what do we need to get to 51%? Firstly, what proportion do we have now of people that are willing to vote for action on emissions? And how many more do we need? We, maybe we only need a handful more politicians, 20, 30, 40. Which seats can we get them from? And how do we get them? I mean, of course, there's other issues. And I don't want to say that I know more than all the people involved in XR. They probably thought deeply about it. And I don't want to disrespect their choices. But I want to underline what you said, Nesh. I feel very convicted from my own experience that even though lots of us are sympathetic to the XR protests, when I look at its impact on moderates and people who are centrists and people who need to be persuaded to vote for action now, I think the action's negative. It's not just that it's ineffective. It's actually counterproductive. And that's why... Absolutely. I, yeah. You know, because the, 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 there's that... I know that this is another... Um, a space that you're very much interested in, but you know, it plays into that that, that space of um, identity and mm. and group norms. Yeah, you know, where where if you know when someone from the outside, maybe not as sympathetic as I am, sees them, they they go, they're all a bunch of lunatics and stupid yeah. and idiots, and the message yeah. is lost, and it's like I don't want to associate with with these people who you know want to advocate you know to write to their minister or whatever it might be yeah because that that's what they do at least you know in yeah. our in our clumsy 
thought processes. Um, now, yeah. having said that, this is one occurrence. So, you know, I, I don't, I'm not for or against, you know, uh, Extinction Rebellion or, or any, uh, but it is fascinating yeah. just, just talking that through as an example of how, how it impacted me going, that's not quite, uh, I think, uh, a good way forward. You know, I think yeah. it would rub more people the wrong way and, and in actual yeah. fact potentially, you know, create counter mobilization of saying yeah and what i think has been more effective is some of the new strategies so there's some great xr groups i think which are formed along the lines of you know um the doctors without borders reporters without borders and so on so you have some xr groups which are things like you know grandmas for immediate action doctors for immediate action you know nurses for immediate action so what they're doing there is just what you said. They're creating an identity that's actually shared mm. with the potential audience. So then, you know, nurses for climate action can talk to other nurses and to the community from their expertise and their concerns around health. And people who have, you know, um, you know, farmers for immediate action, they can speak and with we great trust. authority. Nurses and doctors exactly. and so on. The, 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 it already has that that gluing cohesiveness yeah. that we, yeah. we we want to help. You know, especially Australians. I think I think we we like getting behind you know people and, yeah. and communities that we believe in. That's right. And that you you look at the group knitting nanas against gas. You may not know this group, but they were very active along the east coast of Australia, and they have spoken out against coal seam gas mining for the most part in rural communities where there's concerns about landowners rights and the water table but you know look at the name right knitting nana talk about trust that's a powerful visual right away we know we love these women they're trustworthy we should hear what they have to say with respect and so even if they're doing something controversial like you know blockading which they've been known to do um as they're sitting there knitting i mean you've got to approach it with a whole different optic and relationship and I just think that's such a vital skill for disruptive protesters to grasp that, you know, you can't just be a bunch of young hooligans throwing oil at bank customers because that's a negative image with no trust that can give power to persuade. As that's just, as you say, it could even be if I understood your message, I'd be less likely to do it because I don't want to be associated with you. So you've got to have the most disruptive actions taken by people who have the highest amount of trust. You know, the, the communities understand they're not doing it for fun. They're not doing it as entertainment because that's, you know, the narrative that is um, often promoted by the political opponents of these disruptive actors, whether it's for peace or the environment. You hear about, the, you know, the usual suspects that just have kind of um, an emotional need or some sort of need for significance that leads them to make nuisances of themselves and to get in the way of ordinary working people so that is counterproductive that's not a good approach to take it's so interesting because when we look at you know activism the the most common bodies are uh, lobby groups that, that, mm. that they are you know, constantly in conversation with yeah. uh, with governments and, and saying, you know, we represent a, a, an industry uh, and we're the voice of that industry. I mean, I think psychology has done an exceptional job of, of, of uh, you know, well, you know, since the APS has been put together, that, that that's mm. saying mental health is important. Let's put it on the yeah. agenda. 
and you know the number of appointments is important and people in rural areas who can't actually access can we get them video calls and so on there's been you know I, i imagine a countless ideas put put forward and obviously some of those have stuck but it 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 takes you know for as long as as long as it takes but takes you know forever to to, it's this constant campaign of saying you know we are important please listen to us yeah Uh, and and let's not go backward right like you talked about introducing telehealth and the changes around covid support these are really important and i guess we'll we'll see what happens when covid finishes but it certainly looks as though telehealth is here to say stay and it, it should be because mm. it's needed. Oh, and so those kind of um, changes have to be sustained over time. And they're sustained over time when your group, psychologists, builds a coalition of people that are willing to support you. So, you know, if we're supported by men's groups or by, you know, the legal or police or military groups, they're not supporting us to support psychologists. They're supporting us because they believe that by supporting psychologists, they benefit their own members and interests. So, you know, um, very high stress occupations need psychological support and they need to have trauma support. And, you know, in the case of COVID, young people are being devastated by COVID. Mm, They need support. So if young people's groups are supporting psychologists, it's because we've built that coalition and we've built it through our um, lobby groups, such as the APS, going forward, you know, I worked for years with the Public Interest Advisory Group, and they did such wonderful, wonderful work, people like Susie Burke, Heather Gridley, but I'm sure the continuing, the office uh, at present is continuing with, with new personnel, just wonderful work where putting the evidence forward to policymakers and to the community groups that policymakers listen to about, here's what we see as a problem, Here's the solution we can offer. And here's the evidence that that solution works. Now, what we need to look at in the broader space is how to move those conversations fruitfully forward for any cause that we're part of. Why is discrimination such a problem? What is the solution that we can propose? And how can um, we provide evidence that that solution is going to lead to effective well, positive changes? That's what I was going to to, to, to raise, Winifred, is... is uh, I can see so easily how the APS can continue to do their wonderful work and many other lobby groups because they have great membership and we mm. we, we pay our membership and they do a great service for us as yeah. well with professional advisory services and you know, legal support and so on and journals yeah. and, and the like. But it's very hard for something like marriage equality or something mm. like the environment, you know, the environment doesn't yeah. just have a pool of money that can go out and say, here's a, a you know, a great team of, you know, really intelligent, brilliant people who are going to put a campaign yeah. together ongoing for, for as long as it takes, you know, I know. how, how yeah. do they organize? I mean, how, how yeah. that, that must be one of the, the, the most difficult uh, aspects because, you know, without the resource of the finances, things fracture easily, you know, that, that cohesiveness yeah. of, of stability, um, yeah, it must be so hard. You're right. And um, I think, you know, there's, there's so many concerns around that. So we know there's lots of social issues that are very important to address. And it's certainly the case that, you know, if your um, problem has a certain face, like young people or cute furry animals, 
it's much more likely to mobilize attention than other areas. So I part even within the environment, for example, I remember a group of conservation biologists that were talking to me about um, the development around Melbourne. And they said to me that there was a, a threatened ecosystem that was needing to be protected in the next five years or it would vanish. And it basically was characterized by certain grasses. Um, so they said to me, how can we persuade the people of Melbourne to care about grasses? And I said, I don't think you can do it in the time frame that you have. You're gonna to need to put forward a campaign around Skippy or another iconic mammal and his need for grasses and how the grasses are important to Skippy and therefore we've got to protect this grass habitat. And the biologist said to me, well, I want people to care about the grass. It's important in and of itself. <laughs> I said, if you want people to care about some of the aspects of the environment, you're going to need generational change. Like there are some indigenous communities in particular that really deeply understand that we're all interconnected and that we can't lose parts of the environment without harming us all. But for where we are in the rest, West right now, if your time frame is three to five years to stop this development, you've got to use these lenses that humans use, which are so distorted. We care about humans much more than any other species. If we're gonna care about species, we care about mammals more than anything else. And if we care about uh, mammals, we care about cute furry mammals with large eyes. And so we can do koalas to a limited extent, and we just can't do almost anything else in Australia, you know, bilbies perhaps, um, you know, so things like the cassowary up in Queensland, North Queensland, this is a vitally important bird. This bird, through their activities of digging and, and pooping and running around the floor of the rainforest, they are critical to 2,700 species. But people won't mobilize because they're not cute. And, and that's within the broad space of the environment. The bigger picture, as we, as we know, Nesh, is that people aren't mobilizing enough about the environment full stop. So we face the limitations of our species. We have trouble with long-term. We have trouble with acts of omission. You know, if we fail to act, there are these problems, but our psychology is kind of, oh, I'm not gonna take responsibility for things I'm not doing. You know, I'm gonna focus on things I am doing in the present. People who are like me, um, animals that I see as like me or that look cute to my um, trained, evolved senses. You know, there's just such limitations. And if I went the other way, I would say, what are the other areas where we failed to see action over a period of decades that's, that's um, proportionate and effective? You know, what about persistent racism against Indigenous Australians? You know, why is it so hard to um, have our values translated into respect, equality, health, thriving in indigenous communities. Part of it is the incredible tendency to impose solutions from the outside, to not listen. You know, the one-sidedness that we know as psychologists to be so common and yet so destructive. Um, so that's where, again, I feel like psychological skills around building relationships, having respect, beginning with listening, understanding that influence starts with listening. Um, that is a, a, a vital cultural um, knowledge that, that we as psychologists can contribute to many areas of policy and political discourse. But um, coming listening. back to, sorry, go my on. apologies. When you say listening, I'm assuming it's still 
coming from the lens of from an activist meaning it's not one person listening it's the whole community you know having 51 percent of politicians who are listening who then make it relevant uh, that that, you know kind of like what like what you said those that you know uh, win are kind of happy those that lose a good proportion of them can can adapt and and adopt it the new and there might still be some stragglers that that become innovative and and continue on but we're really looking at how do we get 51% of Australians to listen to yeah. indigenous well, um you know uh, 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 you know matters issues uh, that that we could do better and and for example us just listening us just even understanding those like you know uh, most Australians probably don't even know what what the issues are for Indigenous yeah. Australians, other than just a quick throw throwaway line, we don't know any of the details. We don't actually understand, yeah. you know, well, much I, of that world. That's right. And I come back to the theory of change, right? So, I think an important um, aspect of any community group trying to organise is to seek to understand what would it take for what we're asking for to be actually delivered. So in some cases with some programs in Indigenous communities, it may not require, you know, mainstream Australia to become more more enlightened. It may just require an understanding among bureaucrats and policymakers that a program should never be implemented in Indigenous communities if it hasn't been co-designed with them. You know, that there there needs to be involvement at the design phase Um, in the same way that we work you know, with other um, communities, you know, when, when we as psychologists are working and we're trying to support people who are depressed or anxious, we don't start without having talked to them with solely negative stereotypes. And yet there are so many programs and so many activist initiatives that don't begin um, with that scoping phase where you think, well, what would it take for the change to happen? Who specifically is involved? Is a particular council member or mayor yeah. critical? How That's interesting they... because yeah. even in the, uh, it's almost like um, uh, going to public consultation. You build sympathy by doing mm. that because you're, you're saying yeah. we're curious, we're interested in your thoughts, we're we're we're, we're yeah. wondering what do you think is best, and and if you're doing that with the community, they build sympathy to your, you know, uh, whether it's cause or, or, or to what you're looking to bring forward and yeah. be guided by that, that, that you actually yeah. have hopefully a, a better insight into what will actually be sticky, what will actually be adopted rather than, yeah. you know, I'm the, I'm the holder of, of, of brilliance and truth and, and understanding and I will exactly. you know, <laughs> apply that on you. That's right. And part of the problem, I, I had a PhD student, Lucy Mercer Mapstone, that wrote six wonderful papers on social license to operate in mining communities. You know, part of the problem is that some corporations and some governments can use consultation very, very cynically. And so they'll consult with community, but they've already made up their mind. And so sometimes, um, you know, you get to a situation where you have even more frustration because the community turned up and shared what they needed and shared what was going wrong and shared a critique. And then the government totally ignores them and delivers the original package. And sometimes you have to put that down to corruption and ignorance. And we have to say, 
part of a healthy democracy is psychology and part of it is political norms of genuine consultation and respect. And I think there can definitely be some pressures within workplaces to shortchange that process. And that can occur, you know, in any workplace, even if you think about, you know, how a large university might move forward with an, un you know, an uncomfortable change that they wanted to put through for their staff and students, you know, usually there might be consultation followed by implementing the change anyways. But where are the norms around that? Like, for example, is there a genuine willingness to change parameters or to support the community or to address problems that haven't been thought of? Or is it just a box ticking exercise that they said they would consult community and they did, but there was absolutely no respect for the leaders and the issues that were raised? In these sort of conversations, the, 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 the idea, well, the possibility of corruption is uh, always comes up. Is that in essence also part of human behaviour in the way that we protect our own interests or we apply yeah. power? <laughs> uh, I mean, the, 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 this is something that, that, that is forever in the fabric of humans. In, in, well, in, in some sense that we're trying to be, you know, a bit more considerate about, about that rather than just allowing, you know, power and profit and so on to, to always win. You know, I know that we're in a capitalist society, but we're also in a socialist society in some sense of many of us really do genuinely care about our fellow neighbour. You know, we, we, yeah, we don't want right. to see and, people, you know, uh, it, losing. That's right. And it, it can be very counterproductive to overstress the cynicism. So here in Australia, for example, I have never paid a bribe. And I've never heard a story of someone bribing a police officer, no, you know, in my circle of. of friends. Yeah. And that is so important. You know, all you have to do is talk to people from some immigrant communities from some countries where you can't go year to year, month to month without paying off people. And that could be for things like getting your professional license. You know, there's some cases where people well, have to pay graft to get into psychology. Let, and, let, let me tell you yeah. from my heritage, and, and this is from what I've been told, and and not from long ago either. I'm, I'm talking yeah. current. In Serbia, um, you know, if you want medical attention, you often need to bring something for the receptionist. You need to probably uh -huh. bring something for the nurse. You definitely need to bring something for the doctor. Um, yeah. uh, and it could be anything like, you know, a nice bottle of whiskey to, to actual physical you know, money and bribes mm. to be seen. Um, this That's is like, right. it, but it's a cultural thing. Like, uh, yeah. that, that is not a strange or abnormal concept in no. in Serbia, and hence why it's it struggled so much. You know, um, yeah. versus in Australia, I can't. As a matter of fact, I, I'd be fearful, um, even if I wanted to, if I was a crook, I'd be fearful of saying, "Hey, police officer," or you know, you know, "Hey, doctor, could you see me for?" You know, if I give you, yeah. slip you a few hundred dollars or something, it would yeah. be kind of frowned upon. Um, you'd probably well, be reported, would. you'd be arrested, um, you'd be uh, ashamed, you know, all, all sorts mm. of things, because it's just not what we do. Um, yeah. And, and as you know, the psychology of that is norms. It is just so important to have norms if, you know, supporting 
democracy that include um, anti-corruption. And so that's why when we look at the news and we see indications that corruption norms have softened at the federal level, most people want to see a federal ICAC, you know, an, an, a center against corruption. And most people uh, believe that, that we do need those strong norms. And the reason why we believe it is because it's absolutely true. <laughs> Societies that don't have strong norms against corruption can see corruption flower. And it's not just with the police, as your story highlights, it can be a scenario where you have to pay your child's teacher to get them to have good grades. You have to you, pay everyone, you know. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk us through a little bit about that from, from your experience? You know, yeah. A scenario like that where, you know, there's always the question of who polices the police, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and everyone puts their hand up and says, we think it would be good to have, you know, uh, an organization that polices the police or the government or whatever it might be. How is it that that is clearly has the majority of support if you go down the road and ask anyone? I'm assuming yeah. so. I'm, I haven't done that, but I'm assuming that would be the case. Yet it yeah. doesn't doesn't happen does just yeah. doesn't happen and it can it, that can go on for not only years it goes on for decades upon decades, decades. where, where yeah. there is you know um uh, consensus in the community but it just goes nowhere can you talk us through how that um yeah absolutely and of happen? course like, what, where, where does that activism sort of break down what is it that that, 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 that that's not happening yeah well that's right if we take those seven outcomes um we can look at at, and see where are we and what's needed. So I think what we've got is we've got a lot of awareness. People know about corruption and we also have sympathy in the sense that the public is fully on board. So that's not the problem. Now, do we have some intentions to act? Well, we do have people putting their hand up periodically and saying, if we're elected, we're gonna do it. Um, I believe that you know labor and liberals have both in the past promised to bring in that um, federal level ICAC and they both, I, think I'm getting the history right. When they were elected, they actually didn't do it. So there's a breakdown. It seems to be between intentions and behavior. And that's very common. Um, you know, people make promises and they don't fulfill them. So how can we get that promise to be fulfilled? Well, there's a lot of different arguments that go into it. One of them is about those coalitions, you know, so what exactly is the problem? And how can we address that? You know, part of um, what some Australians think is that, um, you know, by introducing an ICAC, we introduce unnecessary div divisive partisanship. So there's some people that, that there's a segment of the community that's opposed to it. Other people think, well, it's going to stop me from getting the, the money and support that I need to function effectively as a politician. So those are two different audiences, if you like, that activists would need to address. And as you know, there's a new movement for independence in Australian politics that are running in campaign, you know, specifically to campaign around the environment and um, ICAC. And I think that, you know, that would be one way that we would see that ICAC brought into force. Another one, of course, is a truly big scandal. But having said that, we've had so many big scandals this year. They <laughs> weren't big enough. <laughs> so something that really revolted people, um, something that really caused people within the majority parties to say, no, I actually want this to happen. I don't want us to just promise it. Because there's a dynamic where making the promise satisfies one wing of the party, 
but not carrying it out satisfies another wing. <laughs> so, you know, the policymakers in the center, there playing each side against the middle. We, we need one side to grow large enough that they can carry their way through. And that's about growing coalitions. And some of that means, you know, looking at what's the impact of ICAC on these other communities. They don't care about corruption per se. They have their own agendas that they're trying to pursue. You know, some people say that anti-corruption in politics needs to be accompanied by increased funding for party electioneering. But having said that, um, other people are skeptical that the politicians take the increased funding and still continue <laughs> to solicit, you know, contributions from developers. I don't know if you guys have seen the statistics. There's um, some recent stories just in the last month, but in terms of political donations that are reported, which you only need to report those over 14,000 a year, you know, there's five companies that give more than half of Australia's political donations. That's very disproportionate. And we would expect, of course, that those companies would see their interests advanced by the policymakers given that disproportion. So another, um, you know, system that people have talked about is trying to, to limit the amount of money that can go into politics and setting some caps so that you can't donate more than a certain amount. But there are genuine free speech issues that come out of that. So, you know, we need to have those conversations as a community to address, you know, not so much the naked greed, um, which maybe can't be defeated by activism, but the communities that have blocked action so far <laughs> to try and understand their concerns and to move forward. But I should say, as a, as a social psychologist, you know, what I actually study is the part about the norm. So I've looked at how communicating normative messages can change the way that people act. And it's powerful, very powerful. So that's why I wanted to highlight earlier, it's actually very counterproductive to overstress the corruption in Australian society. When you look at international work by um, groups like Transparency International, Australia is not high in corruption compared to many countries around the world. We need to celebrate that because it is a cultural achievement. You know, we have won that. And then we need to ask, okay, well, is it moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? Are we growing in transparency or, or are we weakening? Are we growing in democracy? Or are we growing in partisanship and factionalism? And if we're moving in the wrong direction, let's start to look at those norms and shoring them up. And that needs to hopefully be a bipartisan agenda, because, of course, the whole society um, ideally should should welcome and embrace democratic, non-corrupt political processes and and activists um, the same. Right. We, we don't want to see a scenario where psychology's effectiveness depends solely on how much money we give the APS that they give to politicians. That's terrible. <laughs> we want it to be a scenario where there's a room for evidence and a room for um, community mindedness and public pro-social advocacy. And that's, um, you know, another discussion we could have, Nesh, because um, a lot of people would, would be uncomfortable with the idea that they're an activist or an advocate, but they might say, I'm a volunteer or I do charity work. You know, I'm trying to, to speak out on behalf of communities, people who have disabilities or you know, um, people who are experiencing, um, uh, you know, resettlement uh, trauma, refugees, you know, uh, people unfairly trapped in detention or, um, you know, anti-racism, they might not even want to be called an activist because the idea there is that activists are only those people who are engaging in uh, public uh, rallies and the work that they're doing, which is building um, 
building resources, building solidarity, creating hearts and minds, you know, building sympathy, as we talked about in those goals. Some people don't even see that as part of activism. But I think when we have that bigger picture, um, you know, we can start to think, okay, well, our, you know, my church has a, a refugee action group and we're supporting refugees, but are we also part of a coalition? Excuse me a second. Sorry, I hope that can be edited out. <laughs> no, no, we didn't but, hear um, anything. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, are we also um, part of, you know, a coalition? To what extent is it useful for us to not just have um, you know, a, a, a tutoring program at the school, but an advocacy voice? Is that something that our membership would be uncomfortable with? And the same thing with a lot of other charity activities by faith groups, by sports groups, by community groups. You know, they are sometimes reluctant to go all the way to politics, but sometimes we want to, you know, as clinical psychologists, not just catch the young people um, who are already depressed and anxious, but prevent um, that, that clinical uh, illness from manifesting by supporting prevention work. And a lot of that requires partnerships, schools with clinical psychologists, with social workers, with youth workers, with parent groups, with neighborhood groups. And those coalitions are quite hard to build by accident. You know, usually you have to put a lot of effort into it. And so, bringing people together so that the different pieces of the puzzle can be combined to create transformative change is part of the psychological challenge as well, because humans just like to focus on micro pieces in the puzzle. We, we resist the big picture, and yet we know solving problems like drug and alcohol addiction requires big, big coalitions and people working together and it's very hard to create and maintain those. And it does require people to make an effort. Even within the APS, you know, a, a few years ago, I think they actually slashed their public interest advocacy team. And um, that's unfortunate. And it's very common for, you know, professional organizations. You know, it's a bit of a oscillation over time, but it's very hard for people to maintain that big picture focus to bring together people to work on a common cause that when you're thinking in terms of decades and not just what we can do in the next six months, humans struggle with the long term, and, and we as psychologists need to help people to build awareness of the norms and group processes that will allow us to cooperate. Um, you know, you and I are both short term thinkers like every other human, and you and I are both focused on our own professional concerns. But this kind of show creates a, sp a space for dialogue. And so, how can we create spaces? for intentional dialogue uh, among communities of managing social um, problems, not just for what we can do in the next election cycle before the May election or whenever it's called, but thinking what could we do in the next 20 years that would create a healthier society? Because you know some of those trajectories, when you look at a country like Russia, for example, they've just had a dreadful 20 years in terms of mental health and substance abuse issues with alcohol as you know, or you may not know, but you know, it seems from my own um, research, which has looked a little bit at issues of suicidality and um, substance abuse around the world as part of the contributing factors that can feed into um, you know, trauma or, or any other work with intergenerational trauma. You can't just have 
individuals taking individual action. You've got to bring people together. And it can't just be about the present. It's got to be about the past and the future. It's a very long arc. And that's hard for humans. You know, we struggle with that. What can we do to be a little bit more long-sighted? What, has your research looked at that? At, at, you know, what are the successful campaigns? Yeah. Uh, what have they got in common? What is it that they are able to achieve for? I know it's only one part of it, but that, you know, sustaining the, the, the movement. But it's almost, it's more than sustaining the movement. It's actually sustaining the, the norms. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm passionate about, we, the data is very weak, I should say. It's anecdotal at this stage, What's what works and what doesn't work. And part of the reason why it'll be hard to develop that um, strong evidence basis is because there are many contextual variables, like how corrupt the government is or the individual policies and personalities of, of leaders at the time that affect what's most effective. But if we look across that bottom there, I see psychologists as contributing a lot of wisdom to the intention behavior gap, because you know you have looked at it with clients so often, and our field has looked at it intensively for 20 years. So, you know, communicating about um, how, in order to make the bridge between intentions and actions, people need to be convinced about effectiveness. They need to have a degree of preparation and trust in themselves, a degree of monitoring, and then a degree of um, willingness to repeat, right? They need to have tolerance for failure often to create lasting change. And that is true in other contexts as well. I mean, imagine a scenario where what we have now is a scenario where every time a community program gets put into place in a, in a community against alcohol or to support a greater degree of um, you know, uh, literacy, it's rare, sometimes it's not even evaluated, but if it were evaluated, it would be treated as almost a dichotomous outcome. Um, either your funding is maintained because you're, you were good enough, or we're gonna cut your funding, that's it, you're out. Well, how, what kind of learning model is that? Yeah. You know, Yes, we wanna have room to get rid of um, organizations and groups that aren't working, but we also need to have an opportunity for a 20-year learning process because we don't know the answers to some of these. And so we need to support communities over a very long time to develop um, the skills and resources, relationships and capabilities that they need to answer these problems. And in order to do that, we need to build broad coalitions that include um, tolerance of failure. Then when we look at those broad coalitions, I think psychologists have a lot to contribute there as well. And that's particularly around the idea that you don't always have to like people to work with them. You know, the way that we work with people that we don't like is we have a degree of, of insight, we have norms, we have um, respect that can transcend mere liking. And we can be in roles, we can work together and psychologists understand that. And, and at the same time, we do have to understand norms and norm change. So we've got to be prepared to resist negative norm change, which often means uncomfortably speaking out, right? So if we know from the 1960s and the work of Ash that if someone says something foolish and one person speaks out, then no one's persuaded by the blatantly wrong argument. But if a person says something blatantly wrong and everyone is silent, then 
a large minority, sometimes even a majority of people will be persuaded. So speaking out uncomfortably, being prepared to say something, break the silence, challenge a negative behavior. That's something that psychologists have shown in many contexts, whether it's from sexual harassment to um, littering, to um, workplace violence, bullying, and so on. That's important. And the other factor there, of course, is leadership. The psychology of leadership um, you know, can inform us to help understand ineffective and effective strategies. And we've seen this with COVID. Some countries have managed the COVID crisis and introduced widespread adherence to vaccination, widespread adherence to um, masks, uh, respect for lockdowns. And some countries have just seen blatant um, failure, disrespect, and um, for the norms, that is, and, and concern. And I'm not saying that we don't have people who are anti-vax here. Of course we do. But I am saying that the, the political leadership, when you look at, for example, the US or the UK, has played a terrible role in undermining the science and undermining the spread of those scientific norms. You know, so vital when we're introducing these abnormal and unnatural behaviors um, to not have, you know, clandestine parties, as, as we hear that they did in the UK, <laughs> or to have political leaders bickering with each other about whether um, they should mask or vaccine, as we see in the US. So those kinds of, of um, social dynamics need to be thoughtfully managed. And I think psychologists contribute uh, very strongly to that. And then the other issue, of course, is around counter-mobilization. And I think the idea of you know, people's aggression and backlash being motivated by something other than immorality is a very psychological insight, you know, that we understand that relationship breakdown is often a precursor to poor behavior. And that doesn't mean that we don't have moral standards, we do. But we also know that if we want to intervene and help a relationship to move forward, we've got to go beyond labeling one party as immoral and problematic and wrong. And that stigmatizing labeling, actually, we know as psychologists, doesn't help that person to change. Mm. Actually, it can trap them. And so we need to um, you know, work with people that are in negative normative contexts, caught up with negative norms, and we need to help them to change. And we've talked about corruption, but how about the drama this year around sexual harassment? Why is it so hard to have a code of conduct brought into the Australian parliament. You'd, you know, that's something that every other Australian is asking for, men and women. You know, we don't want to have our political leaders involved in this rubbish behavior. Get it together and act. And why is it not being put forward? These are problems of norm change, right? It's not the case. We're, go we're on the wrong track if we start labeling individuals and, and parties and saying that they're pro-sexual harassment. Of course, they are not as a party, but what we have is a problem of norm change. And so the solutions for that include positive voices, connecting identities, so people working with liberals and LNP to create that change within the party, as well as leadership from the top. Those are the ingredients of successful norm change. We've got to have um, connection. We've got to have leadership. And we've got to have um, activism that not just mobilizes women and men from outside Canberra, but reaches into Canberra, whether that's through events, um, you know, through campaigns, 
that are behind closed doors, sometimes that might be beneficial, right? Sometimes as a psychologist, you know, people can't necessarily change if they're in the middle of a public conversation where they're being watched by all their friends and family, <laughs> but they can change behind closed doors. And once they've reached that new state within themselves, then they can go out again and speak. Okay. But hammering people is not necessarily the best way to help them to change. So, um, you know, not all psychologists will want to engage in advocacy, but I, what I'm trying to get at is the insights that we have are so relevant and so absent uh, in the in the strategies that many community groups use, which often boil down to shouting from the outside. And, and what you and I know is that um, that is important. And it's, you know, speaking truth to power is vital and positive and important. But after the truth has been spoken to power and they failed to act, it's time for the next part of the campaign, you know? It's so pressing when we look at these uh, really deep and ingrained uh, uh, opposing forces, for example, something like euthanasia that mm -hmm. I think has had a lot of support for an extended period of time but just does not get over the line. Yeah. And I understand there's some very complex things about no one wants, you know, that idea to, to you know, be um, abused or go haywire but we've got some really clever people who do checks and balances like we do everything in Australia we, we, we really mm. consider it um, yet it's only a very 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 late that that we've seen some success of, of people at least having choice and you know, mm. interestingly I believe that there's still very few people who take that choice even though it's available but at least it's it's available in a dignified way for those that that need it and and yeah. my person not need it uh uh could use it um who are in i suppose a criteria that we 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 we, we think of and yeah. you know may, maybe psychology as a, as a group needs to also be you know uh consider about how can we do more um in these spaces, not necessarily yeah. for one or another, but in terms of what you've just said, the, the, the outlining of these, you know, seven, uh, uh, I suppose, um, uh, goals or target rule, actions, yeah, yeah. things to consider in, in, in how do we get movement? How do we get you know action and, and, and do it in obviously a very considerate and respectful way so that voices can be heard. And, and if they're not, um, changing tact to, to, to have it heard. So it's not, yeah. uh, you know, an impulsive or, or it's not, doesn't come from that place where someone builds enough resentment and then becomes a, you know, lone actor and does something stupid, like yeah. drives their forward yeah. in front of, you know, parliament house or something. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to talk about lone actors after this, but I just wanted to respond to your first comments about voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia. And I guess one thing I would say is that, um, you're right, and um, it's been slow coming, but it's, it is coming relatively quickly. So, you know, Victoria has voluntary assisted dying now, and Western Australia, Queensland, and, and Tasmania are all moving in that direction. And so, um, you know, we can ask ourselves, within a decade or two, it may be Australia-wide, but, but what is holding people back? And I think... Uh, an appreciation of the diverse identities and norms is very, very important. So 
the two groups that oppose voluntary assisted dying most visibly are faith groups, which most people know, but also medical groups, which most people don't know. So the Australian Medical Association, for example, does not support voluntary assisted dying. And palliative care professionals on the whole do not support it, although there's diversity and some people do. So we need to ask why, what are the concerns and barriers and listen to them with great respect, as you said. And one of the factors that people are very aware of in palliative care is that as a, on the whole, palliative care is under-resourced. Um, I refer to the care for people at the end of life, end of life care is under-resourced. And there is a lot of discomfort and negativity that people have with the dying. So, um, you know, when you're a young person, you think, oh, I never would want to be old. You know, I hope I die at 30. Um, you know? And then um, when you're 60, you think to yourself, um, I don't want to have X. I don't want to have cancer. I don't want to have dementia. I don't want to have, um, you know, motor difficulties. I would rather die before X happens. But what happens as people approach death that palliative care teams know is that their views often change and that in fact, Immensely. life is beautiful and precious and people can have wonderful life in those last years. And because the wider community doesn't know that and there's so much death illiteracy, people talk about death illiteracy and death literacy. There's so much lack of support for un an understanding of death as a natural process that, that can be made to be dignified and beautiful um, that palliative care teams feel this is just typical of Western society sometimes that people want to rush in and just press an off switch <laughs> to just get through it. Mm. But having said that, I myself would vote for about voluntary assisted dying. But in our research, um, what we've done is we've looked at the perspectives of practitioners. And what we found is that, again, those norms play a critical role, um, both faith norms, but also professional norms mm. that people really want to see that the patient is treated with respect and they want to support that patient and they want to be supported as practitioners because sometimes voluntary assisted dying is, has been brought in so far. It has been brought in for the most part um, by politicians with, because of community views over the top of professional groups. And so sometimes that means that those uh, concerns haven't been listened to and some professional um, uh, doctors and palliative care teams are passionately supportive of voluntary assisted dying. And those have been the ones that stepped forward to make the rules and the procedures because the other people withdrew and they had no part in it. And so that's the unsatisfactory situation that we're in, in terms of policies and processes that has been brought in against their views for the most part, written up by people that didn't um, engage. And so now here we are and it's five years on. Now, what we hope to see over time is again that process of dialogue and respect that if concerns are raised in good faith, they're listened to in good faith and acted on in good faith, particularly the concerns of professionals working in the organizations. And I have a lot of hope that that process will be smoother in Australia because there's been mistakes made overseas that hopefully we've learned lessons from. And each legislation that's coming in, Queensland, Western Australia and so on, they have the opportunity to learn from the others. So some of the questions, the procedural questions, you know, questions of age and so on, you know, they have the opportunity to learn from each other and they can bring it in positively. So that's one comment I wanted to make. 
Uh, you know, our research was looking at whether there would actually be a negative impact on practitioners of being part of the voluntary assisted dying process. And I guess I'll make a long story short and say that research hasn't been published yet, but we didn't find that that was the case. So participating in voluntary assisted dying, um, it's something that some people find very distressing, usually if they oppose it. Um, it's something that other people find, you know, very meaningful and beautiful, usually because they support it. And because the framework in Australia has allowed practitioners to choose the degree of their involvement for the most part, um, on the whole, there hasn't been as much um, you know, distress as, as some overseas cases have highlighted. But certainly some hospitals have brought it in in the face of opposition by staff members. And it's been made available in some wards where there are people that don't want to be involved. And so mm. that's a conversation that hasn't, yeah, it's, it hasn't been had properly. It's been, you know, these are the early years of the transition. And we need to have those protocols in place so that people are able to have respectful conversations and ideally, um, people are not forced to be pressured as practitioners to support something that they may feel yes. quite opposed to. Part yeah. of the great challenge with all of this, and, and, and maybe this is why there's such great hesitation on, on almost everything, is we almost don't have a, uh, an identity which says we can roll things back. Yeah, it's it's once it's in, it just never gets rolled back, and so this maybe the fear of I don't know, uh, uh, same sex marriage is is so frightening because it's like we'll never roll it back, you know, or, or uh -huh. euthanasia yeah. will never be rolled back, you know. And look, yeah. obviously, many of those things, and I'd like to think uh, aren't ever rolled back because uh, they maintain the you know the 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 viewpoints of. Uh, the community but other things you know we, we we don't have a culture of saying yeah i think we got it wrong you know like you know we've given yeah. it a good crack it's been 15 years um we, yeah. we've tried various iterations and it hasn't been of value so rather than telling indigenous folk how they should do it how about we yeah. change the game and and, and do it differently <laughs> yeah. or something we yeah. don't <laughs> seem to roll it back very well we we, we, we no. put in a law and it's almost like laws stick yeah. Um, and there isn't and it's a, even, yeah, there even isn't a worse. mechanism to remove it easily. Yeah. It's even worse in that political context because people become, it becomes associated with particular uh, groups or leaders. And so, you know, when it fails, um, rather than looking at it and being like, okay, well, it succeeded on these, it failed on those, let's try and tweak it. Um, people just say, okay, well, shh, you know, we'll get rid of the carbon tax. That's it. Um, so, there's a tendency to move in these huge lurches or pendulum swings um, where it's almost like it goes too far in one direction and then it goes too far in the other direction. Can we really not do better than that? And the answer, of course, is of course we can, but some of the critical cultural skills and norms that we need involve um, compromise and respect. And these are actually quite easy to lose when you look at normal human psychology. So in the same way that a relationship can um, start to be degraded by uh, poor quality conflict and and worsen and worsen and worsen or someone's mental health can be undermined by poor coping skills that then creates a vicious cycle you know when you have poor coping skills with social problems such as stigmatizing and rejecting um, that worsens the dynamic so the 
cultural and social um, norms and skills of listening um, and respectful dialogue, you know, are valuable in the political sphere as much as any other. And yet, you know, people say very rare there. And when you look at which councils operate more functionally, because of course, at any given moment, we only have one federal government. So it's quite easy to attribute their success or failure to external circumstances like COVID. But when we look at that council level, you know, around Australia, we can see the impact of toxicity, you know, particular towns that might be, you know, riven by um, social feuding can create terrible lurches back and forth as, you know, one gets elected and then another, or there can be an equally problematic scenario where one dominant clique kind of gets into power and maintains its ways and doesn't listen with respect to everyone else. I mean, that, that in effect is what's happened with the disrespect for indigenous Australians by settler Australians. So the persistence over decades of moral failure and policy failure and inequality and discrimination, um, you know, has rested on that lack of respect, lack of willingness to compromise and, and failure to understand that people who are problem solving should work collaboratively. It's, it, it, it's so valid in the work that psychologists do because I, I can yeah. quite comfortably say you know almost every single person that that uh, we meet including ourselves I, I mean human beings yeah. are built this way uh, we find it very difficult to broaden our viewpoint and yeah. because of that lack of breadth we have a limited number of perspectives to make decisions from Mm-hmm. And the psychologist's job is to 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 say, what if there were more perspectives? You know, ju- just yeah. to learn. I mean, yeah, know, I, I don't by any means feel I know. Well, feel I know anything on on assisted um, uh, dying. Uh, I, I just don't know the ins and the outs and and all the medical yeah. stuff. That I, yeah. I imagine I would be blown away if I did some proper, thorough, comprehensive reading that included yeah. uh, those for and also those against, that included yeah. the, the faith-based um, uh, viewpoint, the medical viewpoint, the medical viewpoint for, the medical viewpoint against. Yeah. Uh, there, there's just so much to try and be an expert, not an expert, but um, to be well-versed, uh, considerate in something uh, yeah. before making comment. Uh, but we're, we're so narrow and so it it's hard to get, I suppose, uh, raising awareness is one thing, but then the nuances, the, the, the complexities yeah. about what, yeah. what are we raising awareness? It's almost like I know that psychology is blown up in Australia where everyone, you know, and that's a great thing, you know, everyone kind of says, yep, mental health is on the agenda, it's great. But, you know, I think now we've got another problem, which is, you know, now I think the word depression and anxiety is overused so much that, that mm. uh, it's not really discussed as a clinical term anymore. It's, it, mm. it's almost like a, a regular term and that, mm. that's got its own inher- inherent difficulties yeah. and problems that, that um, yeah. you know, we need, to have, we need to have a voice on too. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, coming back to that issue of the lone actor um, you know, terrorist um, or activist. I'm I'm very interested in that problem of violent activism and group and individual uh, people that engage in violent activism have very different motives and profiles. And there's been a terribly unhelpful discussion around that. So um, to begin with, people kind of t- 
tend to think that anyone that engages in mass violence must be, you know, clinically disturbed, mentally ill. And um, so, you know, people will use this term incredibly casually and that you and I know that, in fact, if you're mentally ill, you're not more likely to be violent. You're actually less likely to be violent. You're more likely to be a target of violence. And that's partly because the most common psychological illnesses, depression and anxiety, reduce your risk of perpetrating violence. So that's just a really important point to make that people who are mentally ill are stigmatized, they're targets of violence, and they shouldn't be labeled and blamed for violence as a whole. But in addition, we can then move beyond the generalization about mental illness as if it's just one thing, <laughs> start to look at, um, you know, what are the aspects of of mental illness that might in fact be associated with violence. And to no one's surprise when it was looked into by psychiatrists such as Paul Gill, you identify that you know, engaging in mass violence is associated positively with um, the paranoia disorders. They, they increase the risk. Now the majority of people that act uh, for mass violence in societies such as the US where that's more common, as you know, they have a mass murder every day where that's defined as more than four people killed who are strangers to you, or at least some of whom who are strangers. So um, people that engage in those actions, they are more likely to be mentally ill, they're more likely to be paranoid in particular, although it's still the case that, um, at least in some research, the majority of people that engage in that action are not um, clinically diagnosed. The numbers are still quite low. But what's interesting, um, Nesh, is that when you look at violent actors who work in groups, terrorist groups, they're actually statistically less likely to have mental illness than the general population, including paranoia, for the obvious reason that if you're a terrorist group, you tend to weed out people that are crazy in the same way that militaries and police weed out people that are suffering from uh, paranoia and so on. Which Sorry. does make a lot of sense because uh, these are highly organized and, 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 and you know, uh, considered, you know, they, they, they make deliberate, um, they cause deliberate damage and, and, and issues. It's not very impulsive. They are right. you know, thought through and, and, and that, that obviously wouldn't be the um, stereotypical uh, approach of someone who might have a paranoid sort of a, a disorder going on that they That's would right. be much the more impulsive rather than, than organised by exactly. any means. Yeah. That's right. And so the factors that predict group-based violence are identities and norms. So you look at long-standing violent groups like the KKK in the US, you know, these are organized groups that um, they recruit um, through social networks with narratives about grievances that they have and uh, attempt to satisfy certain psychological needs. So that 3N model of radicalization by um, Aria Kruklansky and colleagues needs narratives and networks. You know, organized groups work through these um, big picture processes and there can be individual differences that play into that. You know, his team, Kruklansky's uh, group over in the US at START, um, which is the center of terrorism research, they've argued that an individual's need for significance can be, increase the likelihood that they will become part of a a violent extremist group. But in my own research, you know, I would say that um, because people's identity with the group is the core motivator for engaging in normative behavior, what we really need to look at are 
um, that process of norm change that can allow the group to become violent and then to stop being violent. So as you probably know, or as many of your readers may, may know, um, terrorist groups, the way that they most like, they most frequently leave their terrorist activities is by returning to nonviolent activism. So yes, they can be disbanded or imprisoned and killed, and that does happen in a, a minority of cases, about 40%. But um, research has shown that, um, you know, they, they, the most common way that they leave is that they rejoin the political process. And of course, that sometimes that means they then go back later to violence. So groups, um, you know, in Ireland, for example, might have crossed the line back and forth, or in particular uh, communities like Sri Lanka, they might go back and forth. But that's the point. We can look at that um, transition of norms to support violence or to support peace. And we can say as a society and as a member of the group, what is it that we can do to promote norm change in the direction that we want? And how can we slow norm change if it seems to be taking place towards increased radicalization and increased violence, increased disrespect, increased contempt? And part of that needs to be about legitimately addressing the grievance that's being put forward in the narrative. So in the case of um, you know, uh, environmental groups such as XR coming back to the beginning of our conversation, there's little likelihood that the members of the groups are mentally, um, you know, unwell. They may well be depressed and anxious, but, you know, many of us are depressed and anxious. That's not the reason why they're, um, you know, part of XR. So we really need to look at the environment and have a conversation about um, the perception that conventional action has failed. And so what is the next step? What is our theory of change? Um, should we be having more die-ins or should we be having more groups like um, Doctors for Swift Action on Climate Change? And it's that theory of change, you know, beliefs about effectiveness and efficacy and the identities that people have that are going to shape their actions. And so that is the, the lever that we know as psychologists we have to pull when we're working with people towards change individually and collectively. Beautiful uh, place to end that on as well, you know, recognising that in actual fact, people who are, you know, maybe have found themselves being violent, maybe they've been exasperated by their, their, their prior um, attempts or you know, mm -hmm. maybe, um, you know, they're, they're going through a hard time can still often return to you know, non-violent means that they still yeah. believe their, their original position, but they find a more adaptive way to, to still be able to advocate their, 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 their desires, their viewpoints. And, and, yeah. and that's really what I think everyone's looking for is, is, is a, an ongoing conversation. Um, that's why I like, you know, shows in, in, in Australia, like, you know, Q and a as much as they might, you know, be, be criticised here and there, any time where there is a panel and there's variety, I mm. think that is just such good, uh, a, a good way to do it in a public public space. Yeah. And, you know, so long as there's a good moderator there um, who's able to allow for all voices to be heard and the public to be heard, um, yeah. you know, whatever comes out of it, at least we can see people having a reasonable dialogue and, and speaking respectfully most of the time and that's just good that's just good stuff it, 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 it's, yeah. it's you know, um, how we want to see you know a, a democracy yeah that's right because you know we do have that 
common goal, um, regardless of a particular issue that we support or oppose, probably most of us agree that we're more likely to have positive social and environmental functioning to the extent that our societies aren't corrupt and repressive. So um, we should be very wary of trends um, that might be moving in the wrong direction and very protective of the wonderful benefits that we enjoy, um, such as the ability to live until you're nearly 50 and never pay a bribe in your life. It's incredible. It's incredible that uh, <laughs> it's just not even a, you know, yeah. a, a, it's a privilege. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Winifred, I, I need to thank you immensely for, for, for your time today. I know how busy you are and, and also to thank you for your research and, and sharing that with us and, and the ongoing work that, that you're doing. I'm pleased to hear that uh, you've been successful in some funding and, and being able to continue that work through UQ. Uh, and also thank you for, you know, your ongoing uh, activism in, in, in your own life because this is what I think is, is what Australia is all about is that we all have an opportunity to speak freely and to um, try and influence the world in the way we want it to, to look like. And, and I think it stands for who we are as a community. So, you know, uh, I thank you, for, you know, on, on all those levels and, and really appreciate, you know, being able to have you on, on, on the shows for all of our listeners to, to really understand those in particular seven, seven areas, but obviously, you know, much, much more in depth and further than that. So really appreciate yeah. your time. Oh, thank you, Nish. And I can't close without saying, um, you know, as we said earlier, that I think your own work is really important and that creating a space for um, discussion and dialogue and education is itself such an important pro-social action. So thank you for your own work in science communication. Thank you. Might have to get you back on when when you've uh, finished this last round of research to to find yeah. out what the latest the latest <laughs> research <love> says. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Thanks again. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe. Share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you